Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, NATO member state leaders meet in Vilnius. We look at why the military alliance is expanding its reach to the Asia-Pacific region. China launches the world's first methane-powered rocket. How important is this breakthrough? Foxconn pulls out of a 19 billion US dollars chip-making project in India. What impact will this have on India's tech manufacturing goals? First on today's show, China has hit back at NATO's remarks and has opposed the military alliance's attempt to expand its footprint into the Asia-Pacific region. The Chinese mission to the European Union says the NATO statement saying China's policies pose systemic challenges is written with Cold War mentality and ideological bias. China says it will fight back at any move that would undermine its legitimate rights and interests. China has also expressed concerns over NATO's repeated references to the bloc's nuclear capacity, which China says will only escalate tensions in the region. For more, we are now joined on the line by a senior Colonel Zhou Bo, China foreign expert and senior fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. Senior Colonel Zhou, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. Um, so NATO's joint communique accuses China of posing a challenge to the alliance's interests, security, and values due to what they call China's ambitions and coercive policies. How do you look at those accusations, and what does it indicate about um, NATO's stance towards China? Uh, the irony is that NATO has been talking about this for many years, but uh, I just cannot uh, understand why China and NATO being so far away from each other could actually become a problem in which China becomes a threat. Actually, uh, China has uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, exchanges with NATO. So this relationship actually is not zero. But for us to understand this, I believe uh, it is uh, important for me to point out that uh, I obviously have uh, discerned a remarkable change in the attitude of NATO toward China simply because um, the head of NATO, uh, that is the United States, actually has uh, adopted a different uh, approach towards China. I think that is a very fundamental reason why NATO would call China a threat. Yeah, then what is your take on the accusations that China uses its economic leverage to create strategic dependencies and enhance its influence? I mean, isn't economic interdependence supposed to be the key feature of globalization and, and what contribute to global stability and prevent conflicts? Yeah, that indeed is the problem. For example, NATO is the largest military alliance uh, uh, in the world. So if NATO look at the uh, security issue or a military issue, I fully understand. But when NATO talks about uh, China using economic uh, influence as coercion, apparently NATO is talking about something non-military. So that shows precisely how unfair this kind of acquisition could be. So mind your own business. Talk about your own expertise. When you talk about uh, China's uh, you know, influence uh, or interference in the economic field, uh, this tone actually is very much like um, uh, that uh, of the United States or European Union when they describe China as a uh, you know, systemic uh, 
a rival uh, or the economic partner. But the problem is they put all this together. In fact, they don't know what China is. So that is my my conclusion. Mm-hmm. Well, the statement also accuses China of opaquely building up military power, and it also says China is rapidly expanding its nuclear capacity. I mean, are those accusations fair, given that China's defense budget only accounts for about 1.5% of its GDP, while the U.S. spends nearly 4% of its GDP on defense and has acquired its NATO allies to increase th- this figure to above 2%? Uh, the word OPEC actually means that uh, NATO uh, talk about China being uh, uh, not so transparent mm-hmm. about its middle budget and so on and so forth. Again, this is an old issue. Uh, the question is, I believe uh, uh, this is the most remarkable to mention that uh, in spite of uh, uh, you know the challenges China faces, China's uh, defense budget has remained on the 2% as in decades. And as you have agreed to point out, and this comes into a sharp contrast with, for example, Japan, which that has doubled its uh, defense budget this year. So when you talk about uh, a defense uh, budget that is less than 2%, it tells you a lot about China's confidence. China's confidence about what? About itself? About the environment? Or about the China-U.S. relationship as well? So this kind of confidence actually matters tremendously for this region. So if China is not confident, if China spends, you know, on defense spending like the United States, which is at least three times higher than that of China, then probably NATO has a reason to complain about China's rights. Okay, then how do you look at NATO's cooperation with the Asia-Pacific four countries? And why do you think um, NATO is expanding uh, eastwards into the Asia-Pacific region? There are many people in China who worry about this kind of uh, you know, contact between NATO and the countries uh, what you have mentioned, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, RK, and Japan. I myself, actually, I'm not so worried because this kind of uh, uh, contact, for me, is symbolic only. Why? Because uh, NATO actually, for decades to come, will be buckled down in Europe because of the war in Ukraine. Of course, every war uh, will end one day, but we don't know how long the war will last. And the only thing that everybody can agree with now is that we do not know how long the war will last. But even after this war, Definitely, we're going to see a new Cold War in Europe because the whole security architecture of Europe has been changed profoundly. And it's basically the security of Europe is uh, just how NATO and Russia could coexist. So the question is, how much strength does NATO really have you know, to divert its own attention to this region in the Asia-Pacific? So this kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, connecting everyone is just a symbolic because it just wants to show that, uh, okay, NATO is powerful, NATO uh, wants to be expansional, but uh, the question is, can NATO really do that? Then if the purpose of NATO is to actually contain China, I don't believe it is possible at all. 
Uh, there are two reasons. One is because of the so-called curse of geography, because China and NATO are just far away from each other. Basically, NATO is in <clears throat> New York. The other thing is many European countries, well, who are at the same time NATO members, would have huge stake to maintain good relations with China. So it won't be easy, even if the United States want to lead NATO against the China. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously not all NATO members hold the same kind of um, ideas in this um, eastward expansion. For instance, um, France has expressed its opposition to a NATO liaison office in Tokyo. Uh, how does that indicate um, the, the differing opinions within the alliance on engaging with China in the Asia-Pacific region? France is a different country. To put it more uh, uh, briefly, it is a colonist country. That means that all uh, French foreign policies would actually follow uh, uh, foreign policies that was actually uh, dictated by uh, General de Gaulle. So uh, France's foreign policy is always somewhat different from all other countries uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, this, in, in one way, is to show that uh, how different uh, France can be. And secondly, it also has a tradition because of uh, the Gaulle. So, but uh, putting all this aside, I believe uh, uh, President Macron uh, has proven to be far-sighted. For example, he actually has coined a lot of terms like uh, branded NATO and uh, European strategic autonomy. All these things are true. The only question is uh, how uh, France you know, could actually you know, substantiate this, all these kind of things. Yeah, look at the NATO. On the face of it, NATO actually is becoming more popular because uh, more countries are trying to join NATO. But at the same time, NATO is always uh, uh, having its own catch-22 dilemma. That means no matter how strong it is, it dare not attack even a single country, that is Russia, yeah, uh, in Europe. And on the other side, if it is uh, owning a defensive organization, as it would claim itself, then it is ridiculous. Why? Because in this organization, which is already a 31 member, including three nuclear weapon states, whose economy is much, much larger than Russia, how can you describe yourself as defensive? So this is a dilemma for NATO. So that means no matter how popular NATO is, and I must say NATO is popular, otherwise why country would join NATO? But such a kind of popularity would not invite security of Europe. On the contrary, the more popular NATO is, the more insecure Europe will become, and this is the destiny of NATO. Okay, that's a very interesting point. And as you have mentioned, Macron once called NATO brain dead, but now it looks that it has come back to life and, and it's becoming more and more popular. So do you feel that uh, the Ukraine crisis has actually strengthened the unity among NATO alliance member, uh, members? Superficially, yes, but still it would not be able to resolve its own dilemma. Because uh, I'm not uh, only talking about NATO, because NATO is a military alliance. All military alliances would live on so-called threats. Because without a threat, this military alliances would not be able to live. 
But for such a job note like NATO to leave, they need a big, big threat. So what kind of big threat could actually justify the, the existence and expansion of NATO? Of course, the countries like Russia. Russia, of course, is not Soviet Union. But who looks most like the Soviet Union? Only Russia. So therefore, they need such a threat. So because without such threat, it cannot live. It cannot expand. So even if it can live, it can expand. Still, it dare not attack NATO. As I have said before, now it is caught in its own dilemma, mm-hmm. in its own catch-22 situation. Okay, and you know, NATO has also criticized China for not condemning Russia's military operation against Ukraine. How do you look at China's approach um, to the Ukraine crisis, and how would you compare that to NATO's approach? The problem of uh, countries in Europe, as well as NATO, uh, on China-Russian relationship, is that they want to put this relationship against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the, the 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 problem is China and Russia are largest neighbor to each other. Therefore, when they look at each other, they would look at the, the bilateral relationship, right? So they would have to consider all uh, elements of the relationship. So you cannot put the China and Russian relationship on a wall, you know, in Europe, which has nothing to do with China, uh, and then on the wall itself. China has an Oscar for respect for sovereignty, which actually is a kind of a Chinese way of saying that this kind of a, uh, war in Ukraine is a violation of sovereignty. And China has a clearly uh, warned against any use of nuclear weapons yeah, in Europe. So think of this. If China actually has been uh, taking with Russia, then this whole situation would be totally, totally different. So China actually has contributed tremendously to world peace and stability in Europe in its own way. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Senior Colonel Zhou Bo, China Forum expert and Senior Fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China has launched the world's first methane-powered rocket. The Zhuqie-2 rocket was developed by a Chinese startup called Landspace. This marks a major breakthrough in cutting-edge technology previously dominated by U.S. SpaceX and Blue Origin. According to Landspace, the success of this mission has laid a solid foundation for the development of reusable rockets in the next stage. For more, we are now joined on the line by Xu Yansun, the Director of International Cooperation at China National Space Administration. And he's also the Director General of the Asia-Pacific Space Cooperation Organization. Uh, Mr. Xu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, tell us more about the significance of this mission and how important is this breakthrough? Well, I think uh, this is the very first uh, Mephian engine that is, uh, has been successfully launched into outer, outer space. So this is very important, uh, significant moment. As we all know that the, the traditional, uh, traditionally speaking, there are about uh, three different kinds of uh, rocket engines that is using three different kinds of fuels. Uh, and uh, this is the number four that is using methane as a fuel, 
which is um, uh, very important for future missions, in particular interplanetary missions. Uh, so it's said that uh, these uh, methane-powered engines are known for their high performance and low operational costs, particularly for reusable rockets. Uh, so could you explain more on this? Well, as I said, there are uh, traditionally three different kinds of launch, uh, launch vehicle uh, engines. The first one, what we call a traditional uh, engine, using UDIMH and nitrogen tetroxide as fuel. Uh, that, that is a, a very uh, reliable engine, but it's uh, also very toxic there. Uh, the fuels and uh, the oxidizer are also very important, uh, very uh, toxic. So we then turn to uh, a second uh, variety, which is the liquid kerosene and liquid oxygen. This is more efficient and uh, environmental friendly. Friendly, we uh, we use this uh, as uh, using the new generation launch vehicles starting from Long March 5 on, so Long March 5, Long March 6 and 7. All of these are using liquid kerosene as fuel. And then there is also the cutting edge uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen uh, engine. So this is more challenging because uh, liquid hydrogen is uh, has a very low uh, temperature that you, ha- you have to have to maintain it, and also very high pressure. And also transportation of hydrogen is also very uh, complex, and storage is also challenging. So uh, liquid methane came into space, uh, came into use that is just between the kerosene and the hydrogen engine. That has uh, less complex uh, uh, structures in comparison with the hydrogen engine, but also um, uh, uh, more complex than the kerosene engine. But it's more efficient because uh, uh, the the fuel carries uh, is more uh, what we call it proportion ratio is, is much better in comparison with the with the kerosene engine. Okay, but we know that earlier this year, two liquid oxygen and methane rockets, the, the Terran 1 from Relative, Relativity Space and Starship from SpaceX, uh, both, them, both of them have failed in their maiden launches. What are the major technological difficulties or challenges here, and, and what do you think might have contributed to the success of China's methane-powered rocket? Well, the Chinese methane uh, power engine is the what we call a breakthrough in the Chinese uh, uh, space community. However, in comparison with the uh, with the SpaceX uh, uh, methane engine, uh, which has 200 tons of thrust, and also the, uh, the Blue Origin, which has the the BE4 engine with with 240 uh, thrust, uh, the uh, the Chinese version has only. 67 uh, tons of thrust uh, on uh, on sea level and uh, 80 tons uh, once it's in outer space. So this is uh, also the technology used in the engines are, are different. Uh, so we are uh, where we're so maybe we're third stage in, in this uh, uh, where there well, we're ranking ourselves in, in number three uh, groups uh, if in comparison with these two engines because those two are using uh, state of the art technologies for fuel efficiencies and, and much more powerful uh, propulsion. Okay, so so uh, given uh, w- what you said, how do you anticipate the future of, of this methane-powered rocket and, and China's role in advancing this technology? And how might the success of Zhujie uh, to impact the trajectory for global space industry and the potential collaboration between China and other countries? Well, I think this, um, uh, the methane engine is very important, as I said in the first uh, part. Uh, it's very important for the interplanetary missions because we know some of the celestial bodies in our solar system you have big reservoirs uh, and lakes 
of uh, methane. Um, so these um, abundant resources uh, can be used for uh, deep space exploration. And also the methane engine has a character which does not, which it does not create chokes uh, in comparison with the kerosene uh, engine. So uh, with that, uh, the uh, maintenance of the engine and the reusability of the engine is, uh, is much higher. So we can uh, imagine that we go to uh, lunar surface or other uh, planetary bodies that we use methane engines and that we can also quickly refuel that engine and use that engine again and again in the exploration missions. This is important because um, uh, the traditional rocket is using what we call expendable launch vehicle, that you abandon the engine once it's burned just for once. But this uh, methane can provide us with more opportunities to, to have uh, more ambitious missions uh, for uh, interplanetary missions. So with that technology in hand, and also we have also uh, a new generation launch vehicle, which is more powerful to put our payloads into orbit, uh, we certainly can open our, our cooperation um, in the interplanetary missions. But for rocket technologies, these are has always been a very sensitive and core technology now you intend to, uh, to to reserve it to to yourself. So uh, the cooperation on rocket technology might not be happening so easy. But the uh, the missions, for example, uh, lunar missions and Mars missions, uh, can can be extensively cooperative uh, mm -hmm. with international community. Okay, and and you know, notably, uh, the developer of this uh, Jupiter two rocket. Uh, the land space, it is a private company. It is a startup company. So how do you assess uh, the current state of China's commercial spaceflight sector? Well, I think the commercial sector, in particular launch vehicles and satellite uh, uh, community, can, uh, should be uh, much more encouraged by the, uh, by the government and government policies because they provide uh, uh, resources and technology development that is uh, conducive to... Uh, to the national program, and also we we know that the commercial sector, in particular, uh, launch vehicle uh, technology companies uh, like uh, uh, like uh, Landspace and many others, can provide uh, more efficient and cheaper uh, payloads and instruments to outer outer space. This is what we call it accessibility to outer space is very important for uh, for commercial sectors, and also the. This is also a, a good platform to validate many technologies. For example, this, this time the methane technology, methane engine technology has been validated uh, by, by a private company. So all of these are very important um, uh, steps for, for our national development, in particular space sector, for using different technologies to, to have access to space. So this is one good challenge and also very successful story for the private sector. Okay, so how much do we know about Land Space's future plans and its vision for the commercial space market? Well, I think uh, Land Space is, uh, is one of the many uh, commercial companies uh, that is operating uh, launch vehicles to, uh, uh, to the commercial uh, sectors. Uh, we also know there, uh, there are a couple of companies that has already launched a solid uh, booster launch vehicles and also companies that are developing a reusable launch vehicles. So I think Landspace is developing its uh, uh, launching capabilities so that it can provide uh, launching uh, services to many uh, commercial uh, uh, companies. I think they have a cooperation with the European Comspace uh, company, and also they are uh, providing launching opportunities to many other 
uh, sectors. I think this is a good good challenge a good uh, challenge that they are accepting to market their uh, launch vehicle to the commercial uh, community. And also, I think the also the the future for the company is that the methane technology, methane engine technology can be uh, future, uh, more matured mm-hmm. so that it can provide uh, more technology for future missions in, yes. in the Chinese government. Yeah, thank you. Service. Thank you, Mr. Xu Yansong, Director of International Cooperation at China National Space Administration. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Apple supplier Foxconn has pulled out of a 19 billion U.S. dollars deal with Indian mining giant Vedanta to build a chip-making factory in India. The joint venture will now be wholly owned by Vedanta. Foxconn reaffirmed its commitment to invest in Indian chip-making. The company says it will apply for a government program that subsidizes the cost of setting up semiconductor production facilities in the country. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Timothy Kurzweil, research fellow at Advanced Institute of Global and Contemporary China Studies at Chinese University of Hong Kong.、Uh, Dr. Kurzweil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.、Um, so, what do you think is behind Foxconn's decision to to pull out of this 19 billion U.S. dollar deal with、uh, India? Uh, it's complicated. There's a lot of things. So if we remember back to last year around July,、uh, that was when the joint venture was initially announced, and it was for 22 billion dollars in the Indian state of Maharashtra.、Um, that suddenly changed to a 19 billion dollar investment in the Indian state of Gujarat、uh, two or three months later. And then after that, there were problems getting、um, like because neither company, Vedanta nor Foxconn, have ever made chips before. So. Part of the Indian government's、uh, industrial policy is to, you know, offer incentives for supporting chip production, but they need a technology partner who is a has experience in the in the industry who's willing to invest as well,、um, in order to grant the government incentives and make the project viable. And there was a bit of a struggle in in getting that.、Um, they got approval from a European company, but then the Indian government wanted them to invest, not just give the technology, and that was the.、Um, One of the other things that caused the project to be held up. Um. So, what impact does this have for India's chip manufacturing goals? Well,、um, like you said, the both companies seem willing to keep going and、uh, you know find other partners and find other ways to stay in India and continue with these investments. But the big impact that it has for the moment is the delay that it's going to cause and this.、Um, Project has been、uh, talked about for a long time, for almost a year now. And during that time,、um, the Vedanta subsidiary that、uh, is associated with this joint venture has lost a lot of money. They lost about 24% of their stock value. And、um, you know, India is already about、uh, about 10 years behind the the curve in terms of semiconductor manufacturing,、um, and can't really afford any additional delays in this in this regard.、Um, it's a country that already has problems with. Its employment scenario, and I think the estimation of this investment that it would bring about two hundred thousand jobs.、Um, so you know that's something that the country really needs right now,、uh, but isn't going to get just yet. Okay, and you know the Indian government has been actively promoting initiatives like、uh, Made in India program to boost the manufacturing sector and also attract foreign investment.、Uh, but how does Foxconn's exit,、uh, exit affect the perception of India as an attractive destination for global tech companies? I think 
quite rightly, the Indian government has pointed out that Foxconn is still fairly heavily invested in India. Um, it has like four or five different assembly plants uh, for various different um, components. So, you know, the delay on this joint venture is it's not quite the same as Foxconn leaving India in total. However, other major companies have left India recently, such as um, automobile manufacturing companies like Ford and Chevrolet. So, you know, the, the Indian government is kind of struggling uh, to sort of maintain investor confidence in some of these uh, initiatives. Um, they've done a very good job in uh, improving infrastructure development recently, which is one of the big um, historical problems that India's had in attracting investment. But um, what, what today's announcement, uh, you know, what today's story tells us is that there's still a way to go with um, ensuring the stability of new major investments. Mm-hmm. Well, there have been suggestions that Chinese tech companies like Xiaomi should also consider withdrawing from the country due to the crackdown they're facing in the country. What is your pers- perspective on this matter? Um, I think that would be a great shame for relations between both countries because like, in a lot of ways, uh, Chinese um, participation in the Indian smartphone market um, has enabled the development of, um, you know, uh, wide, widespread banking, for example. So more Indians than ever before have access to certain banking and financial services, for example, because they can set them up easily um, on, their, on their affordable uh, cellular devices rather than having to physically go to a banking location. And so this sort of synergy is having a positive impact in the region, and it's a, it's a benefit for both China and India. So sort of short-sighted, politically driven thinking, I think, um, or responsiveness to U.S. pressure, for example, um, if that led to a breakdown in relations where, you know, these companies all decided to leave the Indian market, I think that would be the worst for all worlds. Okay, and and you know, last month, uh, U.S. memory chip giant Micron said it would invest up to 825 million U.S. dollars to build a semiconductor assembly and test facility in India. Um, so, what do you think is behind this decision, and what impact do you think this will have on India's chip making landscape? Well. Um, from the perspective of that company, uh, if I'm being told by a government anywhere in the world that for every one dollar that I invest, um, the government's going to invest two dollars, <laughs> then I probably strongly consider investing in that place because that's effectively what the deal was. It's a you know two point seven billion dollar deal where Micron invests about eight hundred million dollars. So you know um, it just represented a very good deal from the perspective of that company. Um, a very generous package of assistance uh, from the Indian government. Um, and a- as a result, you know, they made the decision to stay there um, and, and to, in- to invest in that way. Okay, so look at the broader global landscape. How do you see the competition between countries like China, the US and India in the semiconductor yeah. industry unfolding? Um, well, at the moment, I think it's you know, it's, it's a case of catch up in the case of China and, and India as well, where they're sort of um, at a level of advancing technology, but, um, you know, not at, not at the same level. And they're both probably going to get impacted by the desire of the United States to maintain its monopoly in this sort of technological sphere. Um, you know, from time to time, the United States talks, talks about itself like a sort of friend and partner of India, for instance, but um, there's no way if India successfully made progress in the area of, you know, semiconductor manufacturing, um, that 
it wouldn't find itself on the receiving end of sanctions and other forms of punishment like China does now. You know, because the U.S. just isn't willing to give up on the number one spot when it comes to these technologies. Mm-hmm. Yes, interesting point. Okay, thank you, Dr. Timothy Kurzweil, research fellow at Advanced Institute of Global and Contemporary China Studies at Chinese University of Hong Kong. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The United States has formally rejoined the United Nations Scientific, Educational and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, after a five-year absence. In 2017, former U.S. President Donald Trump decided to pull his country out of UNESCO. He accused the organization of being biased against Israel. The withdrawal took effect in 2018. The Biden administration announced this June that it would apply to rejoin the organization. UNESCO's governing board voted last week to approve the proposal. In addition to UNESCO, the Biden administration has rejoined a number of international entities that the U.S. had left under former President Donald Trump, including the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Joseph Siracusa, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University. Um, so what do you think is behind Biden's decision to rejoin UNESCO? Well, I think Biden is making a, an effort to get at the same table with the other with the other major powers. I mean, it's it's counterproductive for the United States to step aside in, in a, an organization that's dedicated to uh, international uh, education, world heritage, standards for science and measures and that kind of thing. I mean, uh, there's no point. Now, the United States backed off UNESCO uh, with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Then in the 1990s, Congress passed a law that said that if UNESCO invites uh, the Palestinians on, the United States has to withdraw. So it withdrew again. But there's a connection here, and that is the United States States dues make up 20% of the UNESCO uh, Budget, so uh, UNESCO was was failing on that that side. But I think um, the the Biden administration would have a lot of people within it who would argue that uh, it's important for the United States to be seen, uh, to be to see and to be seen, and it's counterproductive. And, and let me just say something else: the United States, as it uh, accustoms itself to a multilateral world. Uh, is fearful of being irrelevant. Now, if you don't show up to UNESCO and everybody else has an opinion except you because you're not financial, I mean, they, they just didn't pay their dues, so they got thrown off the board. And so if, if you are irrelevant because you don't pay your, your, your dues, and then, you know, you're, you're sort of like a second-class nation. The United States is behaving very badly, and I, I think Biden is... Um, would be under enormous pressure to try to sit at the table and make a positive contribution, you know, in terms of education, world heritage, and uh, uh, and AI and things like that. It's important for the United States to be in the room because it cannot be, it cannot say one day, I wasn't even there when the decision was made. Mm-hmm. So I think it's there's a pragmatic reason, there's a diplomatic reason, and the, the third reason is the United States, I think, is fearful of being irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Well, the Biden administration seemed to believe that rejoining the UNESCO will help it in its global rivalry against China. So 
has the UNESCO become another arena for U.S.-China tensions? I hope not. I mean, the, the Biden administration thinks everything is a competition with China. But Democrats and Republicans uh, are, uh, vie with each other for anti-Chinese propaganda in Washington. You know, they see everything as an attempt for uh, Chinese dominance or a takeover of these organizations. That's ridiculous on their part. You know, China's doing the right things uh, in these things. But yes, they would be uh, looking at it in terms of uh, countering Chinese influence. But uh, there's nothing the Chinese have done in UNESCO in recent years that would actually do that, uh, would, would worry anybody. Now, the United States left a lot of other organizations, the World Health Organization and uh, the Paris Peace Accord, and they got back, I think, on both of those. So the United States is... Uh, going to try to play the game. But yes, there'd be a number of people who see it as a chance to counter Chinese influence. Now, if the Chinese want to take over UNESCO to take over the world, good luck with that. <laughs> okay, but I mean, how might uh, the U.S. involvement in UNESCO impact the overall dynamics and decision-making process within the organization, especially what kind of impact do you think this will have on the development of some key technologies, such as uh, artificial intelligence? Well, it's going to have a major influence. And frankly, I, I see Chinese and United and U.S. representatives and the other great powers uh, coming to, um, to agreement on these kinds of things. They can all see the dangers of, of a technology that has um, uh, software that produces itself. They understand that. I mean, I think this is a, a great opportunity for the United States and its friends and allies and China and its friends and allies to cooperate on, on issues that have um, important uh, influence on everybody. So, you know, maybe it, would, it could actually improve relations rather than uh, exacerbate the differences. Mm -hmm. Well, as you said, in addition to UNESCO, the Biden administration has rejoined a number of international entities uh, that the U.S. had left under President Donald Trump, uh, including the Paris Agreement, for instance. So what does that tell us about the Biden administration's global strategy? Well, I mean, the global strategy is they just go in the opposite direction of Trump. You know, uh, when I was in Europe a couple years ago at a major conference, Everybody wanted to, everyone was obsessed with Trump's tweets in the morning. And, uh, and and now at all these conferences I attend, everyone wants to know if Trump is coming back. I mean, obviously, Biden is moves in a different direction. You know, he is um, moving in a different direction with the uh, Paris Peace Accord and these kinds of things. But, you know, the, the, the Biden administration probably will be defeated in 2024. And maybe others will come along and, and check out again. Now, I, I want you to know that I, I, I've seen a lot. I was born just before the Second World War. And in the United States, in school and high school and university, there's no particular love for the United Nations. You know, since 1945, the United States has always genuflected in the direction of United Nations goals and objectives and even the charter. But the United States has reserved the right to go it alone. The United States uh, only likes the UN when it gets into, uh, it backs them up in wars in Korea, backs them up in the Gulf War One, that kind of thing. But the Americans have no particular uh, affinity for the United Nations. 
It's not taught on a regular basis in schools. So, you know, if a president or somebody wants to leave an organization, most Americans have to find out what they left because there's there's no natural inc inclination. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, middle powers and other great powers understand the significance. I think the United Nations, if it weren't there, would have to invent it on Monday morning. But as I say, the United States never has had a great interest. And in recent years, most of the ambassadors of the United Nations, they're second rate. They're not sending the great people there anymore. They're second, sending the second echelon of people there. So the United States has always had sort of a unusual relationship with the United Nations. That is, they'd like to use it if they can and like to ignore it if they can't do much with it. Mm -hmm. So under Donald Trump, uh, the United States was looking inward with all the uh, protectionist policies, and we see this deglobalization trend globally. So has that changed under Joe Biden? Surprisingly not. I thought that, that Biden would uh, reverse direction on Trump's protectionist policies uh, against China. And he didn't. He kept them there, even added a few of them. I thought he might uh, back away from some of uh, Trump's sanctions against other powers, but he didn't. He kept them. So I think you have to, we have to conclude that there is in Washington, in the Republican and the Democratic Party, a, a solid layer of neoconservatives who see China and Russia as enemies number one and enemies number two. So we got that kind of uh, political elite that enjoys uh, picking one or other nations in the world as a as a nominal or potential ally. And, and so I, I'm not surprised that a number of hawks in the Democratic Party uh, are going in this direction, that is, retaining Trump's policies. On the other hand, there is an undercurrent among Democrats, not the power elite, but within the Democratic Party on the left, to, to look at the world in a different way, in a world that concentrates on nuclear arms, uh, arms control, acute poverty, and that kinds of things. You know, you, you can't walk away from a major multilateral organization that does good things because you don't like what they did with the Palestinians or you didn't like the Soviet position on something. Now, this is, it's, it's almost childish to avoid the United Nations because you don't like what some members are doing. So if you don't like it, get back on the committee. And the United States has now got to pay its bills again. They've got to mm -hmm. pay the arrears plus their, their dues this year. And to, to get back involved and to engage in hopefully constructive and positive mm -hmm. debates. Yes. Thank you, Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University. OECD job markets remain tight even though the global economy has slowed substantially since 2021. The OECD Employment Outlook 2023 says that employment has fully recovered since the COVID-19 pandemic, and unemployment is at its lowest level since the early 1970s. Meanwhile, the OECD report says the world's wealthiest nations must prepare for the impact of an imminent AI revolution that will change jobs, creating new ones, and making others disappear. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University. So, Yan, thank you for your time. The OECD report says its job markets remain tight. The employment has recovered from the pandemic, although the global economy has slowed down. So how do you look at this and what are some of the main reasons of it? 
Right. So I think, uh, you know, once the pandemic is, is sort of of the past, um, now, country's economy starts to reco- recover from the sort of the coma, so that helped the the employment or the job markets to to be recovered. Um, and I think there are still people who are kind of on the sidelines; they don't necessarily enter the labor market, and so that in some ways reduced um, some of the labor supply. Um, and I think you know, usually when the pandemic hit, the service sector is the first to contract. So now, after the pandemic, the service sector is the first to reopen and rehire. So that really helped to generate more jobs because service jobs are typically, you know, labor intensive. Um, so that's a good sign. And on top of that, I think some of the major OECD countries like the United States, like the EU, um, they have had very strong fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. So all these help to, you know, recover um, when it comes to GDP growth, when it comes to um, job creation. So that helped to sustain the labor market. Mm. And OECD has 38 member countries ranging from the U.S., U.K. to Australia, Germany and Japan. So do you think the inflation in this country is still number one concern impacting this economy? What does it mean for the real wages? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think for some of the major economies in, for example, the United States and U.K. and also European um, advanced economies, inflation for them remains a um, still stubborn and remains to be a problem, especially from a policymaker's point of view. Um, I think that's definitely debatable. You know, if um, there's really a economic Russia now to always go back to that two percent target, I think a small positive inflation rate um, has proved to be healthy um, in. Uh, in general for for the economy, not to mention we're now living in a relatively different way, I think, uh, in a different world, um, because all these concerns about, you know, supply chain diversification. So we're trading some resilience um, for efficiency. So um, I think that means we're not going to always find the most cost-effective way of producing uh, goods, but, you know, more so resilient way. And so that would inevitably um, raise prices of goods and services. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think yes, it's, it's still a main concern, mostly because of policy uh, makers are concerned about inflation. If you know relaxing monetary restrictions, that's going to fill inflation again. And because the job market is relatively stable and growing, so they worried about the inflationary pressure. But that said, I think there's very scant evidence that, you know, the job market is so tight that wage has been rising and driving up inflation. When you look at the U.S., when you look at EU, um, their real wage growth is actually uh, slightly negative, meaning that, you know, their wage growth is simply trying to catch up with inflation to protect the purchasing power of the workers rather than, um, you know, having higher wage growth that drive inflation forward. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., a wave of uh, layoffs hit dozens of U.S. companies this year. And Microsoft just confirmed more job cuts on top of its uh, 10,000 layoffs announced in January. So what do these layoffs in the big tech companies mean for the U.S. labor market? Right. So I think we have seen this very interesting phenomenon that in the U.S. there are sectors that are really uh, laying off their workers. Um, you mentioned the tech sector, and we also, you know, see this happening in, for example, the finance sector. That said, um, I do think this is not a good thing um, overall for the economy because, as we all know, um, the tech sector pays well. Um, and once you lay off all these very skilled workers, 
that could have some negative impacts um, on their tech development um, and also in in the job market in the sense that some of the quality jobs are are, are disappearing, um, but you have you know other maybe lower pay, lower skill service um, type of jobs like a gig economy type of jobs that are you know filling the void. Um, but I think you know overall I think that it's um, negative for the quality of the job market. Mm. And this uh, OECD employment report also analyzed the impact of artificial intelligence or AI on the labor market. So how do you think will that change the job markets, especially with the rapid development of the chat GPT and generative AI now? Right. I think, you know, um, in the long term, I think, you know, uh, this generative AI uh could have a great potential to replace some jobs. Um, some of these jobs are very sort of routine-based. Um, they're working on with a, a large set of data, and they need to you know, process the data and, and regenerate some of the data to, for output. I think those kind of jobs could be easily replaced by AI. And so I think there are some estimates that you know, over the next decade, over 50% of jobs um, you know, could be replaced by AI. And I think some of the estimates also, you know, when look at, for example, China's labor market, um, a lot of these tech developments, not just limited to AI, um, could create, you know, sectoral jobs and changes and so on. So close to, you know, 30% of the workers may have to change the jobs. Um, so I think overall, it, it is it is a potential for AI to replace some of the jobs, mm. but it's not necessarily a negative thing, right? Because what it means is that it could release the labor from some of the very routine-based jobs and, you know, send them to the more productive, more creative, um, you know, uh, more sort of human skill uh, required kinds of jobs. And so that could not only boost productivity, but also make work maybe more meaningful and and enjoyable for a human. Um, But I think we're just going to have to put in necessary measures to make sure that, you know, the jobs that are being uh, replaced uh, will be recreated in some other forms and shapes. Mm, so what kind of jobs can be particularly vulnerable to the AI competitors, do you think? Right. So like I mentioned, I think it's some things that are very routine-based, very repetitive, that has uh, basically based on a lot of data. Um, so one example is, you know, when we think about in the legal field, right, the paralegal uh, staff that are preparing some very basic, you know, um, legal documents. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think you know, um, that doesn't mean the lawyers are going to lose their jobs because I think there's still a lot of human creativity um, and human, you know, uh, emotions kinds of uh, elements behind some of the jobs. And also these jobs are a very high stake. Mm. And rapid AI development and adoption means the new skills will be needed, right? So what should the government do to encourage employers to, you know, provide more training, integrate AI skills into education, et cetera, et cetera? Right. I think that's a very good point. I think just like you said, you know, technologies are really revolutionizing uh, at the pace that is so fast, whereas our education system, our skill training um, are just gradually adapting um, to that, you know, rapid changes. So I definitely agree with you. I think the government could play a very important role here. On the one hand is to set up regulations, right? What kind of information can be fit? can be fed into the AI and uh, what kind of data needs to be protected and then what kind of data can be generated out of the AI and how these data can be applied. So I think all these are on the regulation side that the government needs to play a role. And then on the other hand, it's like what you said, right? The, the government needs to take measures to protect workers, to make sure that we're able to 
you know, utilize the technologies for our own good instead of, you know, letting it to jeopardize um, our, you know, own well-being. That's all we have for this edition of World Today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>